Digiday Podcast. I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. And I'm Tim Peterson, senior media editor at Digiday. All right, so Tim, you had the interview this week with Laura Nebush, who is the VP of Marketing at Georgia Pacific. And first question, why'd you want to have Laura on for this week's episode? Yeah, I mean, anyone who heads marketing for a major CPG uh, company or company with a lot of big CPG brands um, like Laura, I will take that conversation any day of the week, um, especially this year, especially at this time of year, because um, as you talked about in a recent episode, it's budget planning season. So I was really interested in having Laura on just to hear how Georgia Pacific is you know, budgeting and where it's ad spending is going these days. And so what were some of the you know major takeaways? Because I'm curious where ad dollars are being allocated right now. I've heard uh, that programmatic is kind of on the up, but there's also a decent amount of interest in like CTV. Um, but curious, like what she had to say about budget allocation for back half of the year. Yeah. So, I mean, would probably won't surprise anyone in the year 2023, but um, the over the past few years, they've been kind of, you know, trending where traditional TV is making up less of the overall budget. So a few years ago, the majority of their ad dollars went to traditional TV and now it's, you know, that's come down to a minority. And um, so, you know, where that money is going is, like you said, streaming um, and, and digital in general. So we talk a lot about that. We also talk about how they've been um, kind of in parallel to that trend. Um, they've taken their marketing mix modeling practice in-house, um, which is also allowing them to speed up the process of updating their models. Um, and so eventually that should give them even more line of sight into how they want to be adjusting budgets and being able to do so you know, more adeptly uh, going forward. All right. Well, a lot to dig into. I will let you guys get into it. Thanks, Tim. Cool. Thanks, Caleb. Laura Nebush, welcome to the JJ Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me here today. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's a what a great time to talk to the head of marketing at a major CPG company because you know we're heading into the fall. It's budget planning season. It's a good time to also look at just you know how marketing mixes have evolved in 2023 and kind of plans for 2024. And so I want to start with 2023. So. Georgia Pacific, you all have some pretty big brands, AngelSoft, Brawny, uh, among other, Vanity Fair, uh, the napkins, not the publication. How, to what extent have the marketing mixes for any of those brands or all of the brands in the portfolio evolved this year compared to 2022? I would say we've been on a journey for the last two to three years. And I think this has been, 2023 has been a continuation of the journey. And we expect to see that move into 2024. I mean, I think certainly we've all seen the major shift in consumer behavior and media consumption more to digital channels. And even within those digital channels, proliferation into a lot of new, um, whether it's social or audio, um, into new tactics that um, that are new and, and, and different um, as you look at our traditional marketing mix. So we have been conditioning, continuing to look at where do we think our consumers are consuming um, their media and where do they want um, or are most receptive to messages as you think about our categories, which is like toilet paper and paper towels and paper plates and really trying to 
find those right spots to communicate, um, that we can do it effectively and efficiently. So that has meant a pretty big shift um, out of linear TV into more digital channels um, over the last two years. And then even within digital, continuing to increase investments in social and audio um, in particular. And so what percentage of the marketing spend at this point is going to linear TV? I would say it's um, it's under 50%, and it depends by brand. Um, so it really is based on kind of that target. Got it. And two, three years ago would have been over 50% yes. then? It would have okay, been probably so two-thirds or more. Got it. And so, you know, that money um, that's going from linear TV, is it... You mentioned it's it's going to digital. Are there any particular channels, you know, specifically the like the TV dollar? And I know it can get a little funky to say, okay, well, this TV dollar is now here. But how, like, how have you, I guess, replaced the linear TV part of the spending? Yes, I mean, we've been. This has been a learning journey as well, um, as we've looked to kind of where do we get the reach. And there's certainly, if you look across multiple digital channels, um, you know, even just online video, certainly social and different kind of formats and social and audio. I would say are, are three areas that we've continued to be able to deliver kind of broader reach, but um, do it even in a more targeted way um, against kind of our our consumer target. So I would say those are three areas that we've seen more increases. Over over the last couple of years. Online video, how broadly or narrowly defined are you when it comes to online video? Because that can be everything from Netflix and Disney Plus and Hulu to YouTube and kind of the long tail of video. Sure. Great clarification. So we consider online, uh, there is a difference to us between online video and streaming audio or, con- or streaming video and connected or connected video. So there has been a shift out of linear into connected video, um, but even more broadly out of, I would say, kind of that video I, I, st- I still consider that to be more traditional video into other kind of formats of video. So there's been shifts into both. And how did that play out for you? Like we're you know talking the upfronts, at least the commitment period of the upfront has just wrapped up. We're in the middle of the order period now. How did like your upfront mix or even just the level of you know, money committed in the upfront change this year compared to years past? Sure. We have continued to see the mix shift between linear and connected and, and moving more into connected video. Um, but, you know, there are still a lot of, you know, there's a lot of potential with connected video, um, but there's also still a lot of challenges when you look at cost and, and quality and making sure, you know, you can get the right um, reach and frequency. And so I would say we're still very much learning in this area. We're continuing to invest more, but we've got key things that we're trying to learn to make sure that um, it can deliver the same, you know, the effectiveness and the efficiency that we're looking for out of those investments. And did you commit as much money in the upfront this year or even more money this year than last year? Or did it come down? You know, I would say it's been relatively the same. I mean, it's our, our commitment are often very much dependent on our brand objectives and our brand investments and what objectives and priorities we have in market. So it will change year to year just based on our total investment changing. Um, but we have, like I said, we, as we've continued to shift more into digital, we have some, some changes in those commitments overall. Got it. And, you know, in talking with buyers as well as sellers, like throughout the upfront period from like the early preliminary discussions, even, you know, last fall through the spring of this year, through the summer, it seemed like there was a good amount of hesitation as well as just kind of a thought of, how much do I actually need to be in the upfront and kind of locked into these year-long deals as opposed to 
a lot of streaming and you know the broader online video mix, I can be buying that throughout the year. Plus, there's the writer's strike. Did you have any of those thoughts this summer? Um, yes, a lot of things to consider about this year. I, I would say, first of all, we still think linear TV is effective. I mean, it is not that linear TV is going to go away from our mix completely. It's more the role it plays in our mix. It is still one of the best ways to reach kind of our target consumer. So it will continue to play a role. I think thinking about how much you want to um, commit versus having the flexibility is certainly something that we take into account. And of course, you know, besides linear TV, where else are our consumers consuming media? So that's more of the driver. Um, while we have absolutely been following the strike, um, you know, still strongly believe that, you know, we'll, we'll still get to a full slate of um, programming that made us feel comfortable in the upfront this year. Okay. Yeah. Cause that's another thing I was curious about is, you know, with the strikes, how, to what extent you all are adapting your, not just the linear TV, but that obviously affects streaming and even has some kind of um, ripple effects, you know, beyond, you know, streaming, but what adjustments have you all needed to make? What contingencies have you put in place for the fall and, and Q4, assuming you know these strikes continue to impact programming? I would say less adjustments up front and more contingencies that we'll continue. We're going to continue to monitor this situation. Um, we have you know opportunities and and probably ways um, of investing those dollars um, in a different way if we need to. We have our own in-house programmatic team, so that also gives us a lot of flexibility if we see opportunities um, from a digital standpoint that we can move very quickly to kind of leverage those. Um, and so that's been a huge benefit just from an agility standpoint as well. When it comes to the upfront, um, I think a lot of folks in the industry are kind of waiting for that tipping point when, you know, a majority of upfront budgets end up getting earmarked for streaming. That that, that doesn't mean that they wouldn't still go or a good number, you know, chunk of that money wouldn't still go to TV network owners, but it would go to Disney for Disney Plus and Hulu more so than ABC and ESPN necessarily. For Georgia Pacific, your upfront commitments, what would you characterize as the breakdown between linear TV and then streaming? Um, without giving too much away, I would say it's still more in linear than it is in streaming. Like I said, we still there's so much potential with streaming, but I it's a it's a landscape that's really evolving. And while I agree, I think there's going to be a tipping point. And if I could tell you when it was, I would definitely be making more money than I do right now. Um, I don't think we're there yet because I don't. It kind of goes to you know it's supply and demand and kind of cost versus who's actually there. And while I think there's eyeballs there, I still think there actually are in linear as well. And I don't think that the um, the prices necessarily reflect that yet today. And so I think they've we've got to continue to think about where are the eyeballs, but also as, you know, as someone who's responsible for how much we're investing to drive our marketing objectives, making sure that it's what those investments make sense. Mm, right. And how do you uh, make that judgment or that calculation when comparing the cost effectiveness of streaming versus linear TV, because it can be, sometimes it can be you know hard to make that because with linear TV, it's generally pretty broadly targeted and you're using programs as proxy of, okay, I know people of a certain age and you know, maybe of a certain gender breakdown over-index on watching the show, whereas you know, streaming, you can get very, uh, I want to, 
I want to advertise to people who are buying CPG, you know, who are buying toilet paper week in and week out. And you can be a bit narrower and that the measurement and attribution can also be different. So how do you get more of enough of an apples to apples comparison? Uh, it's it is a it's a great question. I mean, I would say we're starting our our strategy starts from an audience first strategy. So we first for each of our brands, they have a different kind of strategic target or target consumer. We're looking audience first. Where do we think we can reach them? And then we use different quantitative tools to help us understand the right mix of that. Um, and in particular, MMM marketing mix modeling is still probably what we use most holistically across all of our investments to give us the best apples to apples. And then we'll supplement that with other metrics as makes sense for that particular tactic. Um, but the marketing mix modeling is something that helps us best understand, um, you know, streaming and linear versus online video, social audio, kind of all the different tactics that we may be using. Okay. We're about to maybe go into the deep end because you brought up marketing mix modeling, which is something I probably spend too much time thinking about it. Although I'm talking to someone who probably spends even more time thinking about marketing mix modeling. But I've been having some conversations in the past you know week or so with folks about just the potential for marketing mix modeling to finally modernize. Um, some of these people I've been talking to, have, you know, this has been these conversations have been in the context of AI of, oh, we finally, you know, maybe now have the technology to really not only, you know, make sense of the data better than we can, but to automate more of the processes. So the marketing mix models, to, you know, can be updated more regularly and it doesn't need to be so much a quarterly type thing. Are you seeing any signs of marketing mix modeling modernizing? I think we can get there, and that's what's so exciting about AI. Um, but I don't think we're there yet, or at least I haven't found I haven't found a, a solution where we're there quite yet. You know, just this year, I actually took on analytics as part of my responsibilities, um, and that has been really important as as to um, really integrate it with the team. Um, we also moved to to insource our marketing mix modeling versus leverage an outside vendor, um, and that's also been really beneficial as far as driving more transparency of the results and the model itself, but also ability to do it more frequently on a, in a more cost-effective way. Um, but that's still not, we're still not in it on a quarterly basis. Um, and that would be um, being able to do it more frequently and being able to leverage AI to generate not just um, kind of looking at what happened in the past, but how you think more about kind of what's happening in the future, I think are definitely areas that I'm excited um, to explore in the future. Um, again, I'm just not quite sure that we're there yet, but that's something that the team is absolutely um, interested in and exploring. Got it. What's the frequency you've gotten it to so far? Right now, we're doing it on an annual basis. I guess, you know, budgets are still largely managed on an annual basis, right? Right. And we're, we're using other, we use other metrics to help us kind of throughout the year. We're definitely making optimizations throughout the year, but other metrics are helping us make those optimizations versus marketing mix, which is really informing kind of that overall strategic plan. Bringing that in-house, that feels like a not insignificant <laughs> move, I imagine. I mean, one, having to have the people or, you know, train your people to be able to do that. But then I would also imagine there needs to be like some sort of handoff so that you have the historical data you would need that you were relying on the outside vendor for? What, was, what were kind of the hallmarks of that process for you? Sure. The first thing was the data. And part of the problem was we were doing marketing mixed modeling, but our data sat in so many different places. It sat with the agency. It sat with obviously different media companies. And there wasn't one single source of truth. And so the first thing we did was actually create a data cloud that collected all of our different pieces of data, no matter where they sat, and it harmonized them so that they could be easily accessible. Marketing mix modeling is the first use case that we're using that data for, but we've since found, you know, 
you know, dozens of other ways that now that that data is together and more accessible and um, easy to use, that we can actually use it to make business decisions. But getting the data together and and harmonizing it and having a way to do that ongoing was kind of step one. And the second was talent, making sure we had the right resources internally who could do the work, not just the data scientist aspect of it and the modeling, but also the interpretation and helping us really understand what the results meant. Um, so there were those have been the two things. Um, and then the third is just, you know, the balance between insourcing and, ex- and you know, external um, vendors is often who's got the best knowledge and thought leadership. So in addition to building the team and the data, like making sure we're still staying connected to best-in-class thinking around marketing mixed modeling so we can bring that internally and make updates as needed. What was the time frame for that from, you know, making the decision, okay, we want to bring our marketing mixed modeling in-house to when that process was completed? Uh, it was probably around 18 months um, from the time we said we want to do it, um, understanding, making sure that we could model it ourselves and kind of building out the model, building out the data. Um, so, And then the first step we took was taking data we already had and showing that, you know, results um, that we could deliver results similar to that. So kind of validating the model. And then after that, we were able to start using that as our primary source. Got it. And, and sorry, I believe you said this, but when was it that, you know, kind of that was completed when you started? Sure, that was completed in 2020. Okay, so it's been a few years. Also, like, what a year to <laughs> complete that. Because, I mean, I feel like in 2020, a lot, and coming out of 2020, a lot of the conversations I was having with folks is like, do we just throw out our marketing mix models? Like, it, you know, at least 2020, has that just kind of spoiled the pot for any data we're going to have for a few years? Fair enough. The first year we actually modeled was 2021. It was completed in 2020. The first year we modeled okay. was 2021. Very fair point. <laughs> so I imagine at least that correlates with the shift in spending where going more digital in the spending... It, How much of that would you attribute to what you were seeing from the models? It was very much um, a combination of seeing where the consumer's going, knowing that if we wanted to reach them and reach them effectively, we needed to think differently about our mix. But again, making sure that we could validate that this was the right, you know, we weren't just reaching them at at any cost, that we were reaching them and being smart and uh, and effective with our choices. And, you know, we've learned every single year, we've learned, um, you know, something new and it's helping us continue to kind of change and optimize. Um, Because we know the digital world is just it's evolving so rapidly that, you know, even something you learned three years ago could be different today, wildly different today. So it's something where continuous learning is going to be really important. Right. Yeah. It can also make the budget planning process a bit complicated as well. Um, And that's something, you know, Kaylee Barber, my co-host had, um, I think, believe her name is Natalie Nymark from Per Odell on recently. And they talked a bit about the budget planning process looking to 2024 and, um, Natalie was saying that that started those conversations have started earlier this year than in the past like for them July was when they started having those conversations how far along are you in the budget planning process at this point we're talking end of August yeah, I would say we're pretty far along. Um, we start even earlier than that um, because we're, we want to go into the upfront with a good idea of what we think we're going to invest overall and why. Um, and so it really starts for us with a process with our brand teams, you know, um, sharing their marketing objectives, their marketing priorities, um, and, you know, kind of key messaging and communication kind of priorities they have for the year. And then we work with them to come back with based on your objective and kind of priorities. Here's the, the 
strategic plan, um, and within that, kind of the investment ranges and um, kind of tactical, you know, alternatives. So it, it gets it starts obviously very high level and gets obviously very specific by the end of the year. But I would say we are, you know, definitely two thirds of a way through of the through it as we think about twenty twenty four. Do you expect any like big swing? Like hopefully, there's not anything on the level of pandemic or, you know, even, you know, as disruptive as, you know, these strikes have been, but at the same time, the way the the world is these days, you can never exactly rule that out. But how confident are you that, you know, the, the budget that you've planned out so far is firm heading into next year? I don't know if anything's ever 100% firm because you know, at Georgia Pacific, we actually don't even call it a budget. We call it a plan because we always want to make sure we're working towards not just a number, but what's going to help us achieve our objectives. And that could be more, that could be less. And so we want to think about it that way. So as business as business needs change, as the objective change, um, you know, we will we will co- we are constantly looking at it and providing recommendations to the brand teams. But I would say, from my best knowledge today, I think we are in a pretty good spot and understanding kind of what are a pretty tight range of outcomes for twenty twenty four. Got it. And should we expect to see any like notable like further developments in the evolution of the marketing mix or how? your marketing priorities are evolving? I think it will continue to be an evolution versus something more revolutionary as as we go into 2023. As we've continued to kind of learn and new tactics, we'll invest more in those. And we've had launched a couple new campaigns for some of our brands this year. We'll have some campaigns launching next year. And I would expect us to continue to kind of drive kind of the news around those campaigns and think about what tactics make sense specifically within um, those campaign and the kind of creative idea and, and strategy. Are there any like particular either trends or issues in the industry that you're monitoring like most closely at the moment? I think um, data and data privacy, you know, that one's not new, but it continues to be one that's top of mind, again, as things evolve. And, and as you get closer to 2024 and potentially the real deprecation of the cookie that we've been you know talking about for the last couple of years. Um, so we have put strategies in place to try and um, kind of build our contingencies for when that happens or build our alternatives, but still kind of learning, I think, in the era, area of um, of how else we will think about targeting, you know, as that changes. So that's certainly a big one. Um I mean, you talked about AI, but technology and AI in general, not just for marketing mixed modeling. I don't see a part of my responsibilities today that may not be impacted by it. So really following, again, how quickly those capabilities are evolving, um, identifying where we think it can create value and starting to, to really start to learn in this area so that we can be more informed as things change about how it can help us work differently. Um, I would say we're two, our two big ones. I mean, I think the third one that... Um, it's just top of mind always. It's just kind of the consumer themselves and kind of the evolving consumer, evolving consumer needs. This was very clear coming out of the pandemic as you kind of understood how consumer behavior was changing. Um, as consumer behavior was changing, you know, from those experiences, but just continuing to keep um, under, you know, understanding of that, particularly as um, millennials and Gen Z become a greater part of kind of buying power and, and needed to really make sure we're thinking about them as part of our broader um, kind of audience strategy as well. I want to maybe take those in order, starting with um, data, but then even more specifically, the cookie. So what are... I mean, at this point, I guess it's, you know, not so much preparations because we're kind of coming up on Q1 is when Google is going to, you know, start, you know, taking the cookie away, cookie away from or third party cookie away from 1% of Chrome users. And then by this time next year, it should have, you know, fully taken it away. What are those alternatives that you're 
going to be like really putting the spend behind in place of the third party cookie? I'd say the things that we're doing today, um, one, we've been building our first party data. Um, and so that has been a big focus for the last three years. Um, and we've been able to um, make a significant increase into that. So that's job one. Is, and I think the most important thing is the more first party data we can build and provide true value to the consumer in that exchange, I think the better. Um, we've been you know, certainly working on contextual targeting as an alternative as well. And I would say both of those are more advanced in our learning. Um, you know, areas that you know, we're still exploring are um, new ID alternatives, um, unified ID and other alternatives. And so that's, you know, another area we want to continue to explore. And how do you think about, you know, reach and kind of that post-cookie landscape, especially, you know, so much conversation has been around first-party data, both on, you know, the advertiser side, but then also the publisher side. But a challenge for publishers is a lot of publishers just don't have the first-party data or they only have it on a percentage of their audience, you know, like 30%. And then they kind of have to project off of that for the rest of the audience. And so it feels like everything's trending towards a much more probabilistic landscape after, you know, digital has been known for being a lot more deterministic, even though third-party cookie kind of messes all that up anyways. Yes, I think it will continue to be a balance. I don't think there's going to be any, um, I don't think there's going to be any one solution that's going to solve all the, all the needs, or at least our all needs, um, because we are in categories that are very highly penetrated, reach will continue to be important. While we want to make sure we're delivering the right experience and, and being more targeted and personalized where we can, like making sure we have a broad reach is going to continue to be important for, for these categories. Um, so we will, part of kind of what we're doing right now is really continuing to understand um, where first-party data is most effective for us versus where some of the alternatives and not just looking at them versus today, but looking at them versus each other. So that by the time we get into this time next year, we've got an even more informed point of view on it. And I know from talking with publishers, one thing that they've been hoping for is to see advertisers kind of rally around specific identifiers as opposed to the publishers feeling like they have to support all of the various, you know, cookie alternatives out there. To what extent has Georgia Pacific kind of picked the identifiers you're going to be getting behind? I would say we're still early in that. And that's that's part of the work that we need to do now is um, better understanding that space and um, where we want to we want to test and learn over the next year. Got it. OK. And then targeting is one aspect in which, you know, the third party cookie, but then also just the data privacy conversation um, will have an effect on the ad industry. But then there's measurement attribution, which may be even more of an you know, have even more of an impact or feel more of an impact from the cookie going away from more data, you know, getting regulated, you know, California, there's the delete act that's been proposed, which would make it even easier for people like myself to say, no one gets my data. And not only do you not get my data going forward, please get rid of my data that you already have. How, especially like given that you brought marketing mixed modeling in house, to what extent are you all having to make adjustments for the potential that measurement and attribution becomes even more probabilistic moving forward? Uh, great question. And I would say another one that we're still learning. Um, because we have the marketing mix, obviously, that's um, you know one source of, of truth that we will you know continue to leverage. Um, but we are exploring um, other, other ways to measure at this point, too. Again, I, I would call next year, over the next year, is still going to be come at test and learn. We don't have all this all the solutions right now, um, but something that we will be figuring out as we get into that environment. Another thing you mentioned to be figuring out over the next year or so, AI. So what's the, 
use of AI for Georgia Pacific in your marketing at the moment? Because there's going to be the back end incorporation, which I think like many advertisers probably have been using AI in some form when it comes to kind of the back end technical processes. And then there's the bright, shiny new toy of generative AI. And, and so maybe like I'll narrow my question to that. To what extent are you all using? be it, you know, mid-journey, runway, chat GBT, any of these generative AI tools in your marketing? Yes, we've started um, as a team, we actually have put a very disciplined experiment plan in place because there is so much. It's it's so exciting. It's so much. It can be very easy to just jump in, but we want to be really specific where, where we think the opportunity is and where to learn. Um, we also have internal creative resources, so certainly how we can use some of these things to help us you know, even just inspire and help us kind of brainstorm as we are developing creative. We've seen opportunities about how we can develop creative more efficiently and effectively as so we think about how quickly you can, um, you know, we can use this to expand and kind of the amount of content we're creating. Um, we are experimenting, you know, in areas in design as well, not just um, content creative, but certainly, you know, from a design standpoint. Um, so these are all areas we want to learn in, and we know that there's going to be a benefit, and that's part of what we're trying to say is, like, what exactly is that benefit, and how how do we think we're really going to work differently in the future because of it? But we're really encouraging everyone in the organization just to get in and try. Like, until you start to play with these, you know, it's it's, it's almost hard to even believe, like, how how much it can impact, you know, even just your daily life, much less your 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 kind of business and what you can bring to the business. So we're asking folks to be open to get in and, and kind of play with the tools and just to start to even identify within their day to day how it can help, but be very deliberate where we think we might be want to make some more um, deliberate bets. Right. Yeah. Do you have any kind of hard and fast rules or, or guardrails? Maybe is the better term in terms of using any of the generative AI outputs for marketing. There was a creative agency exec I was talking to last week, actually, who they have you know some guardrails in place of, and if you know anyone on their teams you know uses generative AI to create assets for a campaign, they have to save you know the prompt and um, attach that to the asset just in case there were any potential legal challenges or copyright issues moving forward. Yes, I will say we are staying very, very close to our legal internal legal and compliance group on this, and we are not doing anything without um, making sure that we are, um, you know, we have consulted with them, um, which is why we are using it, I would say, more for kind of brainstorming and inspiration today than we are for kind of final output of, of anything. There's a, a lot... Um, a lot of potential and a lot to learn, but um, you know certainly some areas that are still um, evolving as you think about kind of that part of the of the environment. And have you sent out any missives to your agencies regarding their use of generative AI for work for any of the Georgia Pacific brands? Um, not not missives per se. More we are trying to work with each of them to understand how they are using it so that we can be aware. And again, there needs to be more conversation from a legal standpoint. We're doing that as well. Yeah, I think it was in June. I want to say it was around the time of Can, where I think it was the ANA put out uh, a memo made an announcement saying agencies need to be disclosing or transparent when they're using generative AI for clients. And so I wasn't sure if you all had adopted, you know, anything as kind of hard and fast as that. Um, we have not adopted that per se, but I do think having that conversation with your agencies is really important. Speaking of uh, the ANA and kind of uh, things they've taken stands on, Made for Advertising Sites has been, you know, they made a big announcement in 
June regarding like made up for advertising sites and that inventory appearing in, you know, PMPs. It's been a topic that a number of my colleagues have been doing a lot of reporting around. How closely are you monitoring this MFA situation? Um, I am probably not the right person in my team to, to talk about it as much. <laughs> I am I'm less close to that than um, than the folks on my digital team. Um, so um, not as much maybe as, as um, I should be. Fair enough. I mean, you've got a lot of big brands in the portfolio. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, that's been an interesting one. Another interesting one has been the YouTube analytics, you know, controversies, you know, lately in terms of analytics alleging that YouTube, you know, may have you know made it possible for advertisers to violate, you know, children's privacy with ads running against made for kids content. Um, and then there was, you know, the other issue in terms of, you know, YouTube running ads across its network that, you know, we're you know, supposed to be just in-stream ads, but weren't running as in-stream ads. Have either of these affected how much money you're spending with YouTube? Yeah, we look and always, you know, brand safety is really important for us and making sure our ads are running in the right place is important for us. And we do have different um, kind of controls in place to help us monitor that. And if we feel like something's happened, then we will have direct conversations with kind of the vendor. Um, I would say nothing specific in this instance, but it is something that's important to us and that um, we will continue to monitor and make sure we've got the right metrics so that we can um, have the confidence that our advertising is running, it's running where it's supposed to be, and it's not, um, you know, in any place that we wouldn't be comfortable with our brands appearing. Got it. What conversations have you had with YouTube about either of these allegations? Um, again, I would have to defer that to my to my direct media team um, on on the direct conversations they've had. Because I mean, in the past, you know, there was obviously the brand apocalypse um, with you know years ago, the big brand safety issues with YouTube. Um, but these ones, it, it doesn't feel like this is necessarily set off a firestorm where you have a number of, you know, brand, you know, heads of marketing coming out and saying, we need answers on this. And I've been kind of curious, you know, why that is, why it feels like this hasn't set off the industry as um, past allegations have, not even just with YouTube, but, you know, Facebook's had, you know, similar issues in the past too, but why this one hasn't seemed to really hit much of a nerve? It's a good question. Again, I, I think we're so focused, you know, we are always focused on brand safety and always trying to make sure that we've got the right controls in place so that our advertising appears in the right in the right place. Um, if we don't feel that's happening, we will have direct conversations. But, um, but if, you know, we are trying to balance you know, and ensuring brand safety while also making sure that we're appearing where we think our, our target is and, and where we can best reach them. Looking you know, forward through the rest of this year into early next year, obviously everything's hazy. Everything's been hazy for years at this point. But are there any you know, specific trends or developments that you're most going to be monitoring or that you're most expecting to see over the next, let's say, three to six months? Sure. I mean, I think it's the AI, you know, that we've already talked about is um, that, that I think that's the biggest single game changer that's going to um, impact, you know, marketing, not just how we, you know, um, how marketing appears, but how we as marketers work every single day. Um, and so I think that one will continue to evolve. And um, what I say about that may be very different six months from now as we learn more about what that means. Got it. And how has that affected, like, your work, you know, personally? Like, are you... Spending half your day, you know, just talking with ChatGPT, like, hey, I got to write this email. Can you help me out with this? Probably not half my day, but I, I, you know, 
I will start turning to it to be like, what would it say? And is that actually better than what I would say? So it's it's a great like just as inspiration, it's a great source of inspiration. Um, and it's I think it's a resource that it is you know if we're not using it, it's like why not? Um, it is mm-hmm. a, just another source of information that can help us do our jobs better. Yeah, any any tool that makes my life easier, I'm fairly open to. If you know skeptical of like at what point does this tool make my life too easy and I become the Wally character? So. Fair enough. <laughs> Laura, really enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to the Digiday Podcast. Please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You can even rate us on Apple Podcasts if you like. And we'll be back next week with another episode.